This episode is brought to you by the Learning Culture Experience, a cohort-based course for learning professionals. You'll learn how to transform your learning culture, transform your people, and ultimately transform yourself. In just five weeks, you'll walk through a system for designing cohort learning experiences and explore the VASE framework for cultivating a learning culture. You will leave the program with your very own cohort learning experience ready to roll out at your company. If you or someone on your team would benefit from learning how to cultivate learning culture and how to bring people together to learn, then apply now to join the program. Go to curiouslion.cloud forward slash experience to find out more. I think it's terribly important to insist on individual values. Learning culture podcast. Initiative, creation, all these things which we value. It's now possible to make organizations on a larger scale than was ever possible before. Learning culture podcast teach people to analyze the kind of things that are said to them. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Learning Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Barry, and joining me this week is Angus Fletcher. Angus is a professor of story science at Ohio State's Project Narrative. Project Narrative is the world's leading think tank for the study of how stories work. He's also the author of Wonderworks, a book laying out how generations of authors have laid out narrative and plot techniques that can teach us about things like overcoming grief and stimulating joy or increasing creativity. And it's that last point that Angus has spent his last few years exploring really deeply. This is where our conversation is centered, around the premise that you can teach creativity. And that the way we currently do it, think brainstormings and sticky notes and prioritizing great ideas, is the wrong way to do it. In our conversation, we first define what creativity is, which is not about guessing the future correctly, but about being open to radically different possibilities. We also explore how creativity is the flip side of anxiety and the relationship or tension between those two things. And from there, we dive into how stories make you feel a part of something that is bigger than yourself. And here's where we get into some very practical ideas that Angus has been rolling out and testing with the US military, Fortune 50 companies, and large educational institutions. We explore three narrative techniques to help you teach creativity. These are world building, perspective shifting, and action generating. And Angus shares some great examples of each of them that you can apply right away at your work. Ultimately, creativity is about tapping the potential within. That's something that I care so, so much about and is really the key to unlocking learning organizations to turn great companies into unbeatable learning machines. The work that Angus and his team do really pushes the envelope and, and I think focuses on one of the cornerstone skills that we need to make that a reality. So if you're with me on this journey, sit back and enjoy this great conversation with Angus Fletcher. Angus, welcome to the show. I am thrilled to be here, Andrew. This is truly an exciting topic because I've been thinking about the idea, the concept of, can, you know, the question of, can you teach creativity? And I came across your work probably one or two weeks ago, reached out to you right away and you responded right away, much to my surprise. Um, I feel like you, you guys are onto something um, pretty exciting 
uh, there at Project Narrative. Um, and I'm keen to unpack that with you today. Um, to set the scene, a lot of people don't really know what, about Project Narrative, I would say, yet. Um, I think the work you're doing is super interesting. Why don't you tell folks kind of a little bit about the think tank? Yeah, so I'm a member of Ohio State's Project Narrative. We're the world's leading academic think tank for the study of story. And so, of course, when you hear that, you think we're a bunch of frauds and charlatans because what do academics know about story? I mean, first of all, everybody knows that academics don't know anything about anything. And then, as I've learned from my career consulting in Hollywood <laughs> and other places, um, the moment that a professor walks into the room and starts trying to explain to you how a story works, everyone is just like, please leave the room immediately. But um, we actually have a huge <laughs> array of practical experience in, in addition to my own kind of background in neuroscience and the work I do with a lot of kind of, you know, psychology labs. I work with the U.S. special operations community. I work with some of the world's biggest business schools, you know, teams at Wharton and Chicago Booth. I work in Silicon Valley. I work in Hollywood. I work all over the place. And I guess the, the, the kind of the two things that I'm kind of most known for our first, I think a huge part of the operating system of the human brain is story. So I think that actually story is not just a way that we communicate or talk to each other. I think that story is actually a huge driver in the way that we think. And that's why I think that if you change the stories you tell yourself, you change the way you act and you behave. Um, and the mm -hmm. other thing that I'm most known for is this kind of demonstration, which comes out of biology, that contrary to what we're told, there are no archetypal stories. There are no archetypal plots. There is no universal good way of telling a story. Um, story is mm -hmm. like anything biological, an evolving adaptive tool. Every person has their own unique story. There's always an opportunity to create new stories. And when you create new stories, you transform the possibilities for life. So I'm very much an innovator when it comes to story. And I very much like to work with people who have yeah. new stories to tell. Yeah. Um, There's lots to unpack there. Uh, Joseph Campbell and you would probably not get along too well. Joseph Campbell and I are like in a knife fight in a telephone booth. Um, yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> to be clear, I think that the hero's journey can work um, and it's fine. But, um, you know, as I've gone and said on other places, and if people want, they can go on the internet and Google Angus Fletcher and Joseph Campbell. Um, most of the things we call hero's journeys are not actually hero's journeys, other than the fact that they involve someone who, do who goes somewhere. Um, and, you know, the net effect of, right. of, of the whole obsession with the hero's journey is to completely make narrative conservative and miss the real point, which is to connect with an audience. A story isn't about some perfect structure that you build in a lab and somehow if you just kind of get all the parts in the right place, it mm. works. A story is a technology. And so in the same way that you couldn't build mm. an iPhone without having a user in mind, you know, I mean, every piece of technology is mm. built to do something in the world. And just like every product and every service is shaped and influenced by customers and products and services change over time as the demands change. And it's exactly the same way with the story. And so the key to being a good storyteller is not just to be creative, but also to be a good listener. And if you just think you're going to go open a book mm. and go through the 12 or 15 stages or 21 stages or however you want to break it down to the hero's journey and just use some kind of mathematical mm. formula, then you're going to have a story that a computer will love mm. and will make humans fall asleep. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. So there, there's, um, th th I think this is sort of at the core of narrative technique, right? I think this is the, the essence of, I think, where we're going to take a lot of this. So you bring that 
that narrative background. Uh, you've written an amazing book called, uh, I think, Wonderworks. Um, and the 25 most powerful inventions in the history of literature. Um, I, I feel like that's an important po- some, uh, point to just stick a pin in as well. Can you give folks just a quick example of maybe one or two of those inventions so we can kind of see where that background you're bringing to this idea of creativity? Sure. So the main point of the book is that we think largely about stories as a way of communicating with people, but really stories of technology for expanding your own brain, your own human performance. And so anything your brain can do, there's a story out there that can get more of that out of your brain. So to take an example of the two first inventions mm-hmm. in the book, um, perhaps the most important invention uh, in the history of literature is this invention, which I call the stretch, which basically just creates wonder. And the stretch is just taking anything that is a kind of recognizable pattern or action and then kind of taking it the next step. So some, taking something blue and making it bluer, taking someone who's smart and making them mm. smarter, um, you know, taking a star and making mm-hmm. it everywhere. So what happens when that stretch hits your mind is it generates wonder or awe, which is the beginning of spiritual experience. And it has this effect on your brain that actually makes you less conscious, less aware of yourself. The barrier between yourself and the world dissolves. That's why we have this experience we call getting lost in a book. And it makes you more generous and more hopeful. And that's why the word literature is a synonym for scripture. That's why so many of us go to books, poems, stories, myths, legends, to feel a sense of something bigger than ourselves. Um, I mean, a kind of classic example of a stretch is is an ancient god. An ancient god is just a a human stretched to become bigger, stretched to become more powerful. That's what creates that sense of awe. So that's a very basic one. And then the next invention I talk about in the book um, is for inspiring courage. And uh, courage is not something we talk about, I think, enough in the modern world. We sort of have this attitude that somehow the world is meant to be a nice place (laughs) and we should do everything we can to kind of, you know, customize it to individual users. But the reality Mm. is, is that life is inhuman, at least if you're a Darwinian and a biologist as I Mm -hmm. am. Uh, And really, you know, Mm -hmm. the key to life is to realize that it is a hard and hostile place. And this is something you get in ancient religions, ancient stories, gods coming out of the sky, uh, you know, ripping humans mm-hmm. out of their lives for no reason, floods coming, annihilating humanity, you know, anger, rage, um, psychopathy from, from, from the heavens, you know. And this is all this emotional reflection of the mm-hmm. fact that life in a minute can strip you of everything. It can strip you of your loved ones. It can strip you of your dignity. It can strip you of your hope. And so you need courage. You need to be brave. You need to get up in the morning to face the day and feel bigger than yourself. And so I talk about this technology, which is developed by Homer, but then has kind of continued through the modern novel, through authors like Charles Dickens, for creating what is called um, a kind of God voice, which is a voice that feels with humans, but is bigger than us. And when you read it on the page, it has the effect of making you feel that you're a human, but bigger. It's the same psychological effect you get from singing a song with people when there's a masked voice, a bigger voice. The same effect you actually get from singing in the shower when you hear your voice, you know, and Mm -hmm. it just stimulates courage. Uh, There's a kind of neurochemical reaction I talk about in the book, but it it just makes you feel bigger and braver. Mm. And and that's why a lot of times when Mm. you pick up a book and you're feeling fragile, that book can make you feel I am bigger. I'm part of a larger narrative. I can go and face things. And so those are kind of two simple technologies. Mm. 
Wow. So, okay. So, super interesting here. A lot of these things. So to, to kind of ground it to the audience we here, right? I'm, I talk about learning culture, um, work with people, with companies to develop and cultivate learning cultures. And, and everyone I talk to is extremely concerned with what I've started to call sort of timeless skills. And you mentioned courage would be a great example of that. Everyone wants their workforce, their team, their people to be courageous in what they do. Creativity is obviously another one of those, um, and 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 everyone's trying to figure that out. And and I, I think that's what drew me to your work in the first place was that you approached it this in a way that says, okay, we actually can teach this to people. We can actually develop these skills, which are so often, which are you know, it's those soft skills. Like I prefer timeless, but it's it's often the thought of as not it's something that you're born with, right? That's often what people would think. And and you're saying no, you can probably develop these. Um, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, no. Well, of course. Well, of course, you can train creativity. Um, and I should be honest about my own kind of entrance into the world of, of training creativity, which is that I didn't expect to be doing it. Um, what happened is, is after I published the mm. book, I got contacted by a professor, a Greg Bunch, who's at the University of Chicago Booth, so one of the world's big business schools. And he called me up. He says, Angus, you have this wonderful book about kind of how to use stories to increase human performance. I teach entrepreneurs. Can we kind of teach these entrepreneurs to be more creative? Is there a story that can help them do that? So I said, sure, absolutely. There's a story to do anything. So I started working with them. That was a very successful uh, project. It led me to get connected by Greg to the United States Army. I ended up writing their new field guide mm -hmm. to kind of train creativity in senior officers. I was then connected to special operations. And I'm now working with the special operations community to do the same thing. And so these are a series of techniques mm -hmm. which we have used with, you know, some of the, you know, best entrepreneurs, some of the kind of, you know, uh, people who, who are kind of thrown to these kind of chaotic and volatile environments in terms of special operations. And so we yeah. know that they work. Um, and again, they go back to harnessing the, the story power of your mind. Um, being creative is not about yeah. making logical decisions. It's not about being a logical person. Um, up to this moment in history, the kind of dominant theory of creativity training is something known as divergent thinking or brainstorming. These are all logic mm -hmm. processes, mm -hmm. and we just know they don't work. There's been a ton of data on them that yeah. they don't work. Um, but we also know yeah. intuitively that there's a lot of very simple things that can help you build creativity, such as imagining yourself as a different person. If you pretend you're a different person, if you play the part of a different character, all of a sudden that kind of starts to open things up a little bit. Um, if you imagine that the world is a little bit different, then you start to see possibilities that you don't see. Mm. And so what we do in our training is we take those basic insights and we make them much more rigorous. Um, and we really start to kind of develop and build yeah. on them so you can kind of see this, this yield. Yeah. Okay, so let's dive into this because I think this is going to be fascinating for anybody out there listening that wants to promote, encourage, enable creativity uh, at, at, at their company. Let's, let's first talk about Let's just define creativity. You do a great job of this. And there's two things you've, you've said um, that I want to unpack here. One is that creativity isn't about guessing the future correctly. It's about being open to radically different possibilities. Can you expand on that? Yeah, absolutely. So first, we can just start with the fact that creativity is an innate function of the human brain. So even though it's true that you can learn to be more creative, we're all born creative. And why are we born creative? We're born creative because humans had to evolve in fast-changing, volatile, <laughs> dynamic environments where nothing was particularly stable. And we had to be able to come up with creative ideas. We had to be able to see emergent opportunities, see emergent threats, and respond fast to them. 
And so, you know, um, a, a, a big part of, of, of being creative is just kind of like tapping in to that natural power that you already have to, to mm. be dynamic. And what happens in those moments is unlike a computer, a computer is always trying to predict the future. So, so this is the idea behind data-driven decision-making, which is honestly largely bogus. Um, we need to get out of this psychology that we've gotten ourselves into <laughs> over the last 30 years, uh, that somehow if we just have enough data yeah. and it's good enough, we can predict the future. I mean, I hope that the events of the last three years have convinced people that no amount of data could have predicted any of this stuff, you know? Um, I work with a lot of hedge funds right. whose AI right. algorithms have just exploded recently, you know? So, you know, once you mm. accept that, like, you can't see the future because it's too volatile and uncertain, then what the purpose of creativity training in the present is, is to make yourself more flexible and able to react faster to the present. Because what you see yeah. is that most people freeze when change happens. They freeze and then they look to mm. someone else to tell them what to do or they try to go back to something in their past that worked. And if you train yourself with creativity, then actually you're the opposite. You seize the initiative in moments of volatility. You see that moments of volatility are moments of opportunity and you react quickly. And if you can train a team of people, or if you're a manager and you have a team beneath you and you can empower them to react faster in those moments because you trust them, because you devolve authority and decision-making to them, then all of a sudden your team can just mm. work much mm. faster than any other team because it's trying things in this space. Mm. And even though most of the things it tries initially are gonna not work, because that's the thing about creativity is you can never know in advance if it's gonna work, they're then gonna react faster off their right. mistakes and they're gonna get quicker and quicker and quicker at the new thing, whatever it is, and they're gonna make the future while everyone else is still sitting back in their chairs trying to figure out what the, what the future is gonna be. I, I love this. There's, it's sort of a, there's a bias to action within this. There's, um, there's an acceptance, there's an experimental like MVP type uh, like for, uh, philosophy to it. Um, it, it. All of these things underpin what, I've, what I see as a, a learning culture within a company. And, and there's a decentralized nature to it as well. You, you're sort of ceding power for creation to the people, right? And, you, and you're enabling it. So you're giving them the, the tools and the, the right constraints and guardrails and all that to be productive within that space. Um, that's super helpful framing. And I wanna add one more uh, sort of direction to this. And it's this, I think on, in your fascinating conversation with Jordan Peterson, you said the flip side of anxiety is creativity. I, I was, as soon as I heard that, I was like, I wanna ask him, I don't think Jordan Peterson followed up that one specifically, but I'd love to know what you mean by that. Yeah, no, Jordan did not follow up on that. I think he was too confused by some of my other ideas. Um, so what I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, <that was> a... <laughs> uh, what I mean by that um, is, well, first of all, let's even just take a step back. And the fact that we're so obsessed in our culture with anxiety is a problem, you know? And as a result of that, we then have this yeah. kind of focus on kind of like mindfulness or meditation, and all these kinds of things. We're constantly trying to make our minds less anxious. Well, the reality is, is the human mind is anxious for a reason because that is nervous energy. And that nervous energy is the source of a huge amount of creative ideas. And if we're constantly trying to make our minds less nervous and less anxious, we become less creative. We become more zen. We just kind of go with the flow and the way things are. And that's totally fine if you want to be part of a system and you want to go along and you want to trust everything around you in the architecture. But if you want to be alive to the possibilities of the moment, you have to tap into the fact that your brain has this nervous energy. And where does that nervous energy come from? It comes from the fact that the brain is not unified. The brain did not evolve to be a unified engine. 
It evolved to have multiple different sources of power and process going at the same time so that it's in a constant state of inner conflict and tension. And that's why anyone who's a creative knows that all creativity comes out of a moment of tension, (laughs) of conflict, either between you and your environment or you just feel something isn't right. And then out of that tension and conflict comes flow. So not so creativity isn't endless tension, it's not endless anxiety, but that's the root engine. And then once you get that engine going, you can power it into flow and you can start to go. But you mm. have to realize that when your brain starts to get anxious, that's not a negative thing. It's not a sign to let get rid of the anxiety or kind of root it out or there's something wrong with me. It's actually lean into the anxiety, embrace the anxiety, have gratitude for mm. the anxiety, and then leverage the anxiety into creativity, which then produces joy and all these other kinds of positive gains. So that's the kind of the beginning of a very natural process. And because we're so obsessed in our culture with happiness and having things too fast, and we get very uncomfortable the moment we encounter difficulties and challenges, we also get very self-conscious. We cut off a lot of these natural biological processes at the root rather than leaning into them and leveraging what is a moment of discomfort into a kind of long-term sustainable gain. I love that. Uh, it's like create, um, anxiety is, is the signal. Creativity is the response in the present moment. Um, joy is kind of that resolution or, and, then, and then the flow that comes is, is where you produce your, your best work. That's exactly right. No, that's exactly right. And, and, and there's many, many analogs of this in, in, in other parts of life. You know, I mean, grief, for example, no one likes to experience grief. But grief is a huge source of growth emotionally for us all. We all mature through grief. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we become aware more of the things we have and how to protect them through grief. And so a huge part, I think, of being a healthy, productive person is not to run away too fast from negative feelings, um, but to kind of lean into them enough to kind of get that positive, propulsive energy that they provide and then kind of let it carry you forward. Mm. So you're not dwelling in anxiety. Certainly, if you've been experiencing long-term anxiety or it's a constant thing, I'm not saying that that's positive, you know? Um, and I would never want anyone right, to kind of right. be in a long state of grief. But what I'm saying is, is if you suddenly have a moment of anxiety or something has been bugging you or you're concerned about something, um, a lot of the answer may come in terms of leaning into that and actually trusting that inner tension in your head to generate something that your conscious mm. mind is not aware of because... Your conscious mind is a tiny, tiny part of your brain. We vastly overrate the conscious mind. Um, There's this huge engine sitting beneath it, which can do an enormous amount of work. And a lot of that work is kind of shrouded in mysticism and mystery. And this is where you kind of get these kinds of Jungian things, which as you may be aware from listening to the Jordan Peterson podcast, I'm not a Jungian. Um, But there's nothing mystic or (laughs) mysterious. You don't have to be a magician to think that your unconscious mind, like your stomach or your heart, is doing a huge amount of work that you're not aware of. And you want to lean into that kind of muscle power that, that is there. And if it's anxious, it's anxious perhaps for a good reason. Yeah, vulnerability is another one. Uh, like I'll throw into the mix there. We hear a lot on this, this show because that's something that we're trying to promote more in the workplace and all the, all the good things that, that flow from demonstrating that. So that that's super helpful. I... Um, I want to, I want to sort of like, sort of, I want to ground this now because I think, I think that's at a conceptual level now very clear. Like that, it seems to me like narrative technique is the process you've developed and are potentially developing still. I, I want to ask you about that as well around the, 
the sort of harnessing of that uh, unconscious <clears throat> intelligence that we have. Is that is that yeah. a fair assumption? So, I mean, if you think about what a what a narrative is, let's even just throw the word out. Let's get rid of narrative. Let's just say plot. What what is a plot? A plot or a story comes right. about because there's a conflict. Everyone knows that conflict is the basis of any plot. And out of that conflict comes action, comes forward momentum, comes a release of energy. You're transported to a new place. And then at the end of that new place comes discovery, joy, satisfaction. And so that same process that I talked about in the brain, starting with anxiety, starting that's the conflict. That conflict drives your forward momentum, drives your story, drives your arc ahead. And then that arc becomes flow, which then leads to these kinds of payoffs, just like any journey does. And so a huge part of mm. this narrative technique is identifying productive sources of conflict, productive sources of tension, and then learning how to kind of ride them and roll with them and kind of see where they go. So before a lot of people are listening now, are probably thinking like, okay, this is great. Tell me, how can I start to do this in, in my, um, in my company? And I'm going to, we're going to break down. I think you, in the paper that you released, there are three sort of techniques, which, which I want to dig into with you before we do that though, I feel like one thing that has to be there is the conditions for people to be open, to be vulnerable, to be comfortable with anxiety, um, how have you done that? You've worked at, like you mentioned, these these large military, uh, you know, organizations or, or groups within the military. Uh, you've also worked with Fortune 50 companies. Like, how are you creating that condition for people to embrace this? So all of this comes from trust, which comes from honesty. And those are very simple words, but they're very hard to get. <laughs> and, and I think we all know that. And I think that, you know, it's been my experience that honesty is something that ultimately has to be modeled first by leadership. And honesty doesn't mean telling yeah. other people the truth about them. Honesty doesn't mean coming into the room and being like, here's all the five things that are wrong with you. Honesty means coming into the room and being like, here's how yeah. I failed. Here are my mistakes. Here are the things I'm uncertain about now. Here are the things I'm scared about now. And then doing that in a real way. Now, if you're a leader and you just kind of drop that on everyone too fast, that can be overwhelming. But if you come in and start to become comfortable by saying, I'm really scared about this, or I really don't know about this, or I really screwed this up, you know, but you do it in a way that makes it clear that that's a source of actual confidence for you because you're comfortable admitting that, then other people start to feel confident too. And it doesn't become about a wallowing in mistakes or failure. It becomes about an acknowledging them as again, a source of conflict and tension, because those are in tension with your expectations and your desires and your drives. And then how do we fix them and how do we move forward? So honesty is the number one thing. It's the hardest thing. And I do think it has to be role modeled either by leadership or by courageous team members. Yeah, I love that point. And the the modeling of the behavior you want to see is also a consistent theme from people that we talk to on the show. Um, so yeah, I, yeah, I, I I guess I'm, I can't resist the follow-up question there is in your work, if you come in there and you find a leader that's resistant to that, anything that's worked for you to sort of get them to see the benefit of doing this? Sure. Well, the first thing that I often do with leaders is I'm just honest myself. You know, I'll go into a room mm -hmm. in a very public place and I will say things about myself that I don't like to admit. <laughs> and I will in invite people mm -hmm. to ask me any question about myself and I will answer it honestly. Um, and you know, and I, I've said things that have surprised people with my honesty and kind of my own kind of failures and vulnerabilities. 
Um, you know, and so I think, first of all, you, you, you kind of model the behavior yourself and you sort of maybe a little bit embarrass the leader and also make the leader also maybe a little bit admire you. Uh, so I, I think to a certain extent, you kind of have to lead the leader in those cases. Um, and, you know, yeah. beyond that, at a certain point, what I always say to people is you can't change people. And I never go anywhere trying to change people. I mean, that is not my job. My job is not to change mm. people. My job is to give people the opportunity to change themselves. And I would go crazy mm -hmm. immediately if I was trying to change people. Um, it just does not work. And, yeah. you know, if you walk into a yeah. company and it's clear the leader does not want to change, does not want to do these things, I would say to the employees, there's another company out there with a leader who does. And you can go to that company. And, and that is the yeah. way the system works, you know? Yeah. And I think once leaders realize that and recognize that, then they have a gut check moment. And they're like, okay, am I going to step up to this yeah. challenge? And I think most people are leaders because yeah. they've stepped up to challenges in their lives and they're not scared of that moment. Um, but again, at the end yeah. of the day, you can't make another person change. Yeah, that's great answer. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Hey, it's your host, Andrew here. I wanted to take a second just to say that if you're enjoying this podcast, we would love it if you did a couple of things for us. If you're watching this on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. It really allows us to grow the channel and reach a lot more people like you. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, take a moment to leave us a rating and review. It's a great way to give us some feedback and to tell the world what you think about this podcast. So whether you listen to it on YouTube or you're listening to it as a podcast, you take one of those actions, it would mean the world to me and my team. Thank you. And with that, right back to the show. Okay, so, so you've got a, a company that's embraced this. You've got the leadership setting that tone at the top. Um, before we, I keep sort of put, putting this off, before we dive into the narrative techniques, I want to just break apart the, the idea of brainstorming. So you wrote a great piece in the Harvard Business Review around like why brainstorming doesn't work. Um, and, and I think that's a helpful framing for people because it's often the first place we'll start, right? When we're trying to say, like, let's, let's do a creative, creative session. Um, so why doesn't brainstorming in this traditional sense work? Well, first of all, everyone knows it doesn't work. So, I mean, I mean, and no one has ever challenged me on the fact that it does work. I mean, all brainstorming could ever do is just kind of release a bunch of ideas that people sort of just already had in their heads onto a whiteboard for us to talk about. But it doesn't generate radically new ideas. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for this, but I'll, right. I'll, I'll throw out a couple that we can kind of use to kind of prime the discussion. The first is that most of these brainstorming discussions begin with everyone writing on the chalkboard, you know, these are the challenges that we face and here are the opportunities we face. The moment you write challenges and opportunities yeah. on a board, it primes the human brain's hopes and fears. The moment you prime your brain's hopes and fears, it shifts into short-term reactive thinking. It starts thinking, what can I do immediately in this situation to either get that thing or get away from that thing? And so you just shut mm. down all the creative circuits in your brain. And that is why brainstorming almost inevitably yields um, answers that are short-term answers that are, for the most part, highly obvious, mm. um, you know? And, of course, I mean, you know, mm. the other thing with brainstorming is it's like trying to train for a marathon in the middle of a marathon. It's like we've got to run faster. Yeah. How do we make ourselves <laughs> run faster? It's like, well, yeah. we're already running because we're in the crisis <laughs> situation, you know? And if you really want to encourage creativity in your company, yeah. you have to do it before it's needed. You have to have training exercises right. that are not actually the real thing. 
because then it's not a training exercise. It's the real thing. And all you're going to get at that moment is the creativity that currently exists in your team. You're not increasing any creativity. You're just exercising whatever happens to be there already. So, I mean, if you are serious about increasing the creativity in your team, you have to actually do exercises prior to when they're needed. You have to go and, you know, run those sprints. You have to lift those weights. You have to swim those laps. You have to do all that preparatory work, train those basic skills so that when you get into the actual situation, you've built up those muscles in your head and they can react faster, more flexibly. Yeah, no one's doing brainstorming with with that sort of open-ended like practice for the future thing in mind. Yeah, um, that's a that's a really good point. Um, I, I love I love the sort of emphasis on on long-term thinking. It's it's sort of reacting or responding in the moment, but with a long-term view. I also think there's echoes of deliberate practice in here, where you you create the the environment to put it into to, uh, to action, and and the military does after action reviews. You know, like that. I, I'm sure that sort of plays into this as well where you where you kind of reflecting on what works and what doesn't work and, and all the time you're not trying to respond to a specific situation necessarily but you're trying to prime and train yourself to be able to respond when that situation comes that's exactly right and so you know when you before you go on a mission you think of all the ways it could go wrong you do a pre-mortem you know and you play through in your head all these different scenarios that could right. unfold you know and then probably none of those will actually unfold but because you've got all that flexibility in your head when something else unfolds you're more able to react to it then after the mission you think to yourself of all the things that could have gone wrong you're like we were really lucky that this happened and that happened and we weren't expecting this and it was kind of a you know a, a freak you know fortunate you know accident and then you kind of again yeah. play through your mind yeah. all the ways it could have gone differently and the technical term for that is counterfactual thinking and that is a huge engine of creativity it's often misunderstood as critical thinking critical thinking is a is actually Mm. not it, it's it's become this like weird term that is now used for everything um but actually what you want to develop is that skill of counterfactual yeah. thinking thinking against the facts both pre and post to your point and that is again a narrative skill it's telling a different yeah. story it's it, the story could have gone this way it could have branched that way these are all narrative skills okay so so let's dive into a few of these now and and start to tease out a couple of examples i'm i'm fat cute like you 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 share some of them in the in the research and that but I'm very curious to find out more about specific things that you've run um in and and sort of like how it's it's it, what I alluded to earlier like is it developing like are you, I assume you you're constantly working on this refining it as a as a technique so just to frame it for folks there are, there are three main techniques I think that you listed in, in the in the research which is world building perspective shifting and action generating sort of like three types of uh, techniques um if those if that's still sort of important to the conversation can you perhaps like define and maybe give an example of each of those three sure so um i mean the simplest thing the simplest way to think about these is these are all versions of story thinking so story thinking is your brain thinking in story and when we think of what exists in a story there are three main things that exist in a story. There are the characters who are in the story. There's the plot of the story. And then there's the world in which the story takes place. And so let's start with world building. So one of the things we do all the time naturally when we're kids or when we're writing a fantasy or a sci-fi novel is we change the rules of action. We say, okay, in this world, it's possible for people to fly. Or in this world... Mm-hmm. Um, it's possible for humans to breathe carbon dioxide or whatever. 
And once you make that tiny shift, all of a sudden everything changes. One tiny shift in, in that rule of the world causes everything to change. And so one of the things that we immediately encourage people to start to put pressure on is the rules of their world. And we, we say, let's identify the rules of your operating space. What are the rules that you work under? You know, oh, you know, we sell insurance to these people and they come to us for this, that, and the other thing. Say, okay, fine. Now I want you to identify one of those rules and I want you to change it. Once you've changed that rule, I then want you to cash out all the consequences of that one change. And I don't want you to just stop with one thing. I want you to play it forward a year, two years, five years, 10 years, 50 years, 100 years. I want you to keep pushing as far as you can go into a new world. See how much you can change the environment by changing one little thing. And you know that's the same basic thing, of course, that happens anytime a new technology is invented. Um, we have the computer. Yeah. The computer is actually a pretty simple thing. But that one shift all of a sudden has completely reorientated our landscape. And if you could have gone back to when, you know, ENIAC first went online in the 1940s and seen even a fraction of that, you would be so much richer than Elon Musk, you know, because you would have seen all these opportunities yeah, yeah. miles before they came, you know. And so that's that's world building. Yeah. And again, the thing there to do is um, I just want to emphasize this to people. The rules that you shift and the worlds that you imagine are never going to come true. That's not the point of the exercise. The point of the training is to build up those muscles in your brain. Yeah. Then what's going to happen is you're going to be sitting in your company and then one moment you're going to actually have one of those moments where because you've practiced this skill over and over right. and over again, something that comes up in a specific meeting or something you see while you're walking through the airport or whatever, you're suddenly going to be like, okay, that's the future. And because you've trained that muscle up in your brain, you have primed your brain to be ready to kind of do that huge world shift. So I think this is a very important point because I think it, at one point it was sounding like you could have been describing scenario planning, right? Where you're like looking at like different, you know, medium, low and high risk environments and regulations change, you know, what, what effect does that have? And so you, ha you create these like, very practical plans for these things that may you know happen to some degree of intensity but that's not what you're saying at all you're saying like there's no there's no output to that that moment other than the training of the brain so that you are ready to respond when yes. when it comes up and scenario planning is exactly the same as brainstorming i mean it's 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 always conditioned by your yeah. hopes and your fears and you're just never, ever going to come up with the actual future that way because it's always inclining to what you're nervous is going to happen or what you hope is going to happen. And so we've just done these studies over and over and over again. And we show that when you do scenario planning or brainstorming, people come up with basically 1% of the possibilities of the future because they're so constrained. Mm. And of course, occasionally something that you hope or fear will come true. I'm not saying that it never comes true, but I'm saying that really only comes true about 1% of the time. And then, you, of course, you have this kind of bias this affirmation bias where you think, oh, look, I got it right that one time. And therefore, my hopes are always true. And my fears are always true. And what you want to do is you want to actually right. practice this outside of areas where you have immediate hopes and fears. Um, and you want them to be real world scenarios so that you're not just in a fantasy space making up jetpacks or whatever. But, but so you're actually training those muscles in a hard way. But you don't want them to be literally what yeah. your company is going to be dealing with in the next year or five years. You want it to be a more expansive space. Yeah. And when you do that, I can guarantee you, you will start to see things coming in from outside. You will start to see things opening. And you can't take advantage of most of those, but every once in a while, something will come along and it will change the way your company operates. Yeah, this is, uh, this is 
this is great um let's let's give an example of of perspective shifting and action generating and then we can kind of tease those about a bit more sure so um perspective shifting is um that other part of story we were talking about is a character so if you have one character in a story and another character in a story they'll react differently to the same problem or situation because we all react slightly differently And so the key to perspective shifting is to try and imagine yourself as somebody different from yourself. And the way you do that is you take on that person's motives and motivations as your own. And so we can often do this in teams by we ask a team, we say, hey, um, we put maybe two people together and we say, hey, solve this problem. Then explain to each other why you solve the problem this way. Now we give you a new problem and each of you are going to solve it the way the other person solved the old problem. So you're going to learn from your partner right. how they solved the first problem and then use that motivation to solve the second problem. What happens when you do this is you don't become the other person. I mean, you know, no matter how much you and I hung out, Andrew, I could never become you. I could never think exactly like you, right? And you could never think right. exactly like me because our brains are so different. But what I can do is I can pick up right. different bits of your thinking that then hybridize with my thinking and then create a third person essentially. And that third person thinks differently from either right. of us and can see opportunities and answers that neither of us can see alone. And so that's a huge thing we do in teams. And it's basically a way of taking a four-person team and making them into a 16-person team, you know, because you start to hybridize all their different brains mm-hmm. together and come up with all these different possibilities. Mm-hmm. And then again, when a disaster strikes, everyone just has more ideas because they're thinking like more people. They have more mm-hmm. different kind of narrative engines churning in their head. It's a perfect example of being open to radically different possibilities that, like you said, at multiple, at four by four, um, just exponential uh, new ideas for people. Um, action generating, quick example for that. So action generating, I mean, again, the core of action is just conflict. So what you're trying to do there is you're trying to create new or original conflicts. And a simple way to do that, um, just to kind of tailor to the two things we've said previously, is what if you take a character from one world and put them into another world. <laughs> so, you know, what if you mm-hmm. take one of the characters mm-hmm. from your perspective shifting exercise and then put them into the, the world you've just built? What happens then? And there's going to be a conflict between that character's motives and the opportunities of that world. And, you know, you can do the same thing if you take one person from one company and throw them into another company, you know, or anything like that. That's why consultants are usually somewhat effective is because they're essentially coming in and creating all these new conflicts from outside. And so this is just yeah. a simple way. And there's yeah. millions of ways to create conflicts. They're not just about characters and worlds, but that's just a simple example of how you can activate that same thing to generate a conflict. And then the idea is how would we respond? And, and that's where, where all the, uh, the muscle building comes in. Yeah. How would that character respond? And then all of a sudden you're thinking like another character in a different world and you're starting to build up all these things in your head. And then, you know, when you've built up those muscles, it suddenly becomes much more easy for you to think like a different customer. And you think, oh my goodness, you know, this customer would react differently if these services existed. And neither that customer nor that service exists yet. But by thinking in that way, you can start to kind of generate these new opportunities and these kind of new market spaces. And this stuff just, I mean, once you get in this frame of mind, it just becomes constant and you can come up with so many ideas. And then, of course, the question becomes, how do you select between them? Which is a big part of what I wrote the Harvard Business Review article about. Because all of a sudden, if you have all these ideas, what do you do with them? Because creativity is not the same as innovation. And in fact, a lot of very, very high creativity ideas are very low on innovation potential because basically, you know, I mean, it's like Leonardo da Vinci's helicopter. 
that's extremely creative. It never flew. It wouldn't fly for 400 years. Right. Most companies wouldn't want to come up with an idea that wouldn't become profitable for 400 years. Um, and so you right. then have this thing of, okay, we've got all these really innovative, or got all these, excuse me, creative ideas. Which ones do we start to pick because we think they have high innovation potential? And that's a kind of another step of the process. Yeah. Can, can we go there for a sec? What, what are some of those, those principles? Because uh, well, no, I'll come back to the second, the other question I had, but I, I just want to follow on that, that thought. Yeah, so, so the simple way to do it, and again, people can read the Harvard Business Review article, but what you really want to be doing is you want to be matching your uncertainty to the uncertainty of the times. I hope that doesn't sound too like Vatic yes. or eccentric, but basically, if you're in a very stable working environment you want to pick ideas that are actually fairly boring <laughs> because, you know, if, right. a, if a senior leader who's been around for a while looks at an idea and nothing is really changing in your market space and the senior leader is like, that's a pretty good idea, it's probably a pretty good idea. But if you're in a highly volatile space, then you want to pick ideas that you're extremely uncertain about. And the reason for that is not because those uncertain ideas are somehow intrinsically better. It's because all the ideas that you are certain about are not going to work. And they're a waste of time because they're basically mm -hmm. designed to work in a different operating space. And you have to start jumping faster yeah. and faster to um, more extreme ideas. And this is something we work with a lot in the special operations community is when a situation suddenly turns highly volatile, you have to start trying increasingly more and more aggressive things in that situation. Because if you fall backwards into yeah. your playgroup, in your playbook, then all of a sudden you're actually just using a whole bunch of things which are wasting time and are never going to work. And you have to have the courage and the confidence right. to start trying to go ahead of the moment. And even though that's scary for people, the thing I always say is your competitors are dealing with the same thing. They're dealing with the same volatility. And so really, as long as you are going faster with these ideas and seizing the initiative more aggressively than your competitors, you're still probably going to win because they're stuck trying the old ideas. And so even if you have a huge right. failure rate, in these moments of volatility, your failure rate is still going to be more successful than your competitors because they're just in a kind of zero win yeah. situation. Yeah, there's such a key, key point there. Because this, my question was around like measurement of this. And I feel like, so I just want to bookmark that point, like the idea of the velocity of creativity is, is very, very important here. It's not, it's not the, the necessarily the quality of the ideas because we don't know, right? So it's more the velocity of being able to generate them and then respond and, and, and keep going, right? Um, so I think with that in mind, I, what I was, my, my question was sort of, well, how do you measure the success or the efficacy of a program like this at a company where time is scarce, right? And so people often responding to actual things in, in front of them, some of them will, might be resistant to like, well, I'm, well, I must like come sit and brainstorm something that may or may not ever happen. Um, so how, how do you sort of demonstrate the, 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 the results of this process? Well, this is a great question. And I, and I can't pretend that I have a, an answer to you in the sense that we've only developed this training in the last year. So I can't point to, you know, something from 50 years ago and say, we invented the moon rocket. Um, all I can right. say is that when we onboard these techniques in companies, they almost immediately call us back in a couple of weeks and say, we've already started piloting one of the ideas that came out of these initial sessions. And, yeah. and because what happens yeah. is, is you, you just realize that it's working. Um, you realize that you're having more ideas. You realize that those ideas are full of promise. You realize you don't know if they're going to work. And you start to get curious and see, 
I want to see if they are working. And, you know, one of the key things I say to people is that just because an idea is creative doesn't mean it's expensive. Um, there's lots of smart ways you can pilot creative ideas, and we all know these ways. So, so you can have a lot of creative. It also keeps employees motivated and engaged. I mean, when I work with companies, a huge amount of like burnout and disengagement is just driven by boredom and repetition and a loss of autonomy in the workspace. And if you start saying to your employees, you know what, do you want to come on this kind of like crazy, you know, pilot thing that's kind of based on an idea that you and your team had, and I don't know if it's going to work or not, but if it does work, you know, it's going to be really exciting, you know, people will sign up for that. Yeah. And, you know, people are, are happy to sign up yeah. for stuff that goes down in flames and then tr jump on and try it again because they feel engaged. And so these are all these things which are not logical, but are very emotional. For people they make emotional sense yeah. not logical sense yeah and you have to remember that humans are not logical and if you try and run your company on this you know optimism uh, optimization and efficiency and and we're wasting time you actually grind your employees down whereas if you have a company that's like yeah. adventure trying things you know a little bit of risk people get up yeah. in the morning excited to come to work they give more energy they think yeah. about your company more of the time when they're not at work and so you actually get a much higher yield from humans by doing things that seem inefficient. Yeah. Yeah. Which is which is hard for for you to to measure. Um, and I appreciate that point. In fact, I empathize with that point. It's actually uncanny how similar the work that we do and the work that you do in in that aspect. Now we've also only been doing it for about a year. We create these shared learning experiences to cultivate a learning culture, which it helps people integrate work and learning. And we get all these side benefits of of innovation, uh, new ideas, surfacing challenges that are that people are having that you know that those experiences um, have have brought to the surface, all of these other things. But it's it's hard to sort of point at a very specific outcome that you can go and say, well, this is what you're going to get. It, it's it, there's almost a bit of a trust me, trust the process. Well, I mean. I mean, honestly, how could you ever say to someone you had that idea because of the creativity training as opposed to the fact that you were naturally creative and were always going to have that idea? Do you know what I mean? I mean, like, I mean, how on <laughs> right. earth could you go right. into someone's neurochemistry and determine whether the source of the idea was their natural creativity or the training? I mean, but what we do right. know is right. that human creativity has increased in terms of the scale over time. And we can look back historically and see these processes take root. I mean, in my own work, I mean, I'm fascinated by the fact that Shakespeare is a huge engine of creativity. And if you look at a number of very kind of highly creative people, whether it's Einstein or Marie Curie or Van Gogh or whomever, they're all reading Shakespeare and they're using Shakespeare in the same way. And these techniques are all coming out of Shakespeare. So there's plenty of examples mm. in history of, of um, which are anecdotal, of these techniques being used by high creative people. And there's plenty of evidence from neuroscience that these are the primary engine of creativity. So even though it would be very hard to identify individual examples and say, this has to be that, we just know that this is the mechanism in the brain which is driving this. And it's therefore yeah. commonsensical to assume that if you refine that mechanism and make it more powerful, then it is in some way increasing your yield. I have no doubt whatsoever that you will get better and better at, at all of that, at, at sort of positioning that, that whole thing. And, and this, to me, I'm just completely convinced in, in the, this idea, the work behind this. Um, I'm ex kind of excited that it's only a year in and sort of you know, excited to see where it goes. I think the thing that excites me the most about it is that it recognizes 
that we have it recognizes the potential for creativity is latent almost in everybody and and what you're doing is creating the conditions and, the, and enabling it to come up it's very much similar to what we do and recognizing that potential is latent within people and we just create the conditions for them to to realize it um and, yeah. you know, one thing I can say for sure is we can know that a lot of the current corporate culture and education culture is inhibiting creativity. So Absolutely. even though you might doubt the science of us increasing creativity, there is hard, hard science that the current way of doing things is decreasing creativity. We know that to be the fact. We know that and we have tons of measurements from education. And, and you can see in the article in the New York Academy of Sciences, all that stuff. So if there's one thing I would say to people is whether or not you believe that you can increase creativity, you can definitely decrease it. And um, that is a hard yeah. fact. And we know a lot of the practices that are decreasing it. So at the very least, remove those practices from your organization. Yeah. And the fastest way to remove them is to just lean into some of these other ones that you and I have been discussing. That's a great way to frame it, actually. For me, it's replaced creativity with curiosity. That's probably the, the, uh, the sort of ultimate one that, that to me is being eroded by not having a learning culture. So I, that was super helpful. Um, yeah, I, I love how you think about this, Angus. I think um, we, we're running up to the end of time here. I could probably talk about this for another couple of hours with you, but um, I want to kind of give you the opportunity to, to, to wrap it up here. And, Maybe with a final question um, before um, kind of how people can, can learn more about this. Where is it headed? It's only a year in. You're working with some amazing organizations, um, getting to get real world data on all of this type of stuff. Where, where is it headed? Yeah, well, basically, we're doing a series of large randomized controlled trials with the U.S. military, which are being run by the military, not by me, I should say. They're being run by Dr. Richard McConnell of the Commander General Staff College, which is important because that means that, you know, I'm not there to tinker with things. Um, we're doing a lot of studies now right. with, with kids and with other organizations. Um, and the main thing is that, you know, that, that article we published in the New York Academy of Sciences has now become the fourth most read article ever in the history of that journal already. And it's only been out for about a month. Wow. So I think you get a sense of how deeply it's starting to kind of like <laughs> penetrate into people's consciousness. And it really just completely overturns the existing way that creativity has been trained so far. So my hope is that actually where it's going is that a lot of other people are going to take this up and run their own trials and refinements because this was not honestly, an area that I intended to enter into. I mean, I, I, you know, my focus is really how different kinds of stories can increase your brain's performance. I mean, that's always what I've been fascinated with. And I've been fascinated with the diversity of human stories. Right. I ended up doing the creativity thing because it turned out, well, that was an area of need. Um, but, you know, my guess is that, you know, people will be creative with my creative idea and things that I don't anticipate will come out of it. And, you know, we'll just have to kind of react to that future as fast as we can when it comes. Yeah, well, it's a good thing you're well trained in doing that. <laughs> um, Angus, it was uh, so I, so thank you for for taking the time. I know you've got a lot going on now. There's um, it, this is just increasing in popularity, so it's it's really cool to to spend time with you, kind of going through this and um, hearing where you are right now. So thanks for for doing that. And if folks want to learn more about it, um, we've mentioned a bunch of things. The HBR article, the, the the journal article, we'll include links to all of that. Anything else you'd encourage them to check out? 
Well, I mean, if they want, they can they can go to my incredibly low rent website, which is angusfletcher.co. Um, there's a link <laughs> there for the uh, the creative guide that we wrote for the U.S. Army, which people love. I mean, people have been handing this stuff out all over, um, you know, companies and places like that. And it, it is a public domain uh, uh, work. Um, and I also have been encouraged and have just recently joined LinkedIn uh, because apparently you can't exist in the business right. community without LinkedIn. So if you want to friend me on LinkedIn, you can be my sixth or seventh friend or, or whatever it is. <laughs> I will do that right after this. Angus, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Andrew. Really, anytime. It was a pleasure. Hello, hello. I hope you enjoyed that episode. It's Andrew again with a quick message. If you'd like to support the show, the best way to do that is to leave us ratings and reviews where you listened. If you're on YouTube, hit the like and subscribe buttons and feel free to leave a comment. We love hearing from our listeners and viewers. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please take the time to give us a rating and leave a review. Once again, we love hearing from our loyal listeners. If you're listening to this on Spotify, please hit the follow button to make sure that you don't miss new episodes as they come out. And as a reminder, this episode is sponsored by the Learning Culture Experience, a first of its kind cohort-based learning experience for learning professionals in which you will join a community of 50 other innovative learning professionals designing and developing cohort learning experiences that you can roll out in your companies. To find out more about the program and when the next cohort is starting, check out curiouslion.cloud forward slash experience. See you next week for another episode of the Learning Culture Podcast. Thank you for listening.